As Steve mentioned, the reading for today's sermon will come from Isaiah chapter 40. I'll read the entire chapter. Hear now God's word. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert, O highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, The nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare with him? An idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, 
who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings the princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary. And young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Our God and our Father, how powerful your word is. When the book of Hebrews says that it is living and active, and when we hear it read, and when we contemplate those words of Isaiah 40, we know what living and active means. Father, would you be with us this morning as we contemplate your comfort, as we think upon the glory of your nature and your greatness your awesome power and might and the holiness of your very being, would you use this truth, Father, to communicate great comfort to the brokenhearted as you are the God who is both great and is with us. And so, Father, be with your people and be with us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I do hope you'll pardon me this morning as I change what I was planning to preach about today and do something entirely else. What I was going to preach about um, from Acts 16 was letting the Holy Spirit guide us according to His Word and by His sovereign providence, which is sometimes very painful, to guide us to walk according to His will and His purposes and not just do what we planned on doing. And so, in light of providence this morning, you can understand how the hard providence of God needs to redirect our steps today. And we need to look at an entirely different part of His Word together than what I planned um, to look at this week. Praise God that even as we make our plans in all of His wisdom and goodness and kindness and compassion, He guides our steps. Amen? Um, 
Isaiah 40 is one of those chapters of Scripture that on the one hand preaches itself. And when Ian got done reading, we could have all just said amen and come to the table and communed with this great God who says, this is who I am. And I am with you and I give you strength. And at the same time, Isaiah 40 is one of those chapters where we could preach all year long for years and years out of these verses and out of these words as God reveals His greatness and also His great compassion to His people in their time of need. That's what I want to focus on this morning. I want to focus just on the comfort that God talks about here, the first two words of Isaiah 40. And I want to focus on the fact that this God who reveals Himself in these brilliantly marvelous terms in this chapter is in fact a compassionate God. And I love that word compassion in the Bible, in the Old Testament, especially when it's used of God Himself, like in Psalm 103 that we read earlier. It describes God's disposition towards His beloved people. It's the word racham in Hebrew. And it comes from a word that has to do with the, the inner parts of us, our, our, our inner organs, literally, our guts. And it's a word, racham, that literally means this, you know, that deep inner sensation of burning pain that you feel in your guts when something hard has happened. That, that's where this word compassion comes from. And when the Bible uses that word to describe how God feels towards His people, literally what it's telling us and revealing to us is that when you hurt, God hurts with you. He's not indifferent to your pain. He's not aloof to your anguish. When your insides feel like they're on fire with the agony of affliction, He feels that because He cares deeply for you. And so He feels your pain in that sense and He hurts in that sense when you hurt. And like a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. When I think about those words in Psalm 103, I always think about my dad, my earthly dad. My dad was the kind of dad who didn't ever let us see him cry too much. And so if there was something sad and his eyes would mist up, he'd put his sunglasses, those big Ray-Ban aviator sunglasses on real quick so that we couldn't see the pain. That's the kind of guy he was. But there were two times when I saw him cry. Once he cried a little bit when... Our family dog died. He loved that dog. And once, after I was riding my BMX bike down our street with my best friend in fourth grade, and we were, we were racing, we were flying down the street at absolute top speed, no restraint, and I hit a pothole with my front wheel and did the whole over-the-handlebars Thing and Pete Rose slide on the asphalt. And they had to take me to the emergency room because I had scraped most of the skin off of my hands and forearms and 
the whole side of my face and forehead was just a mess. Um, and there in the ER, while the nurse is like scrubbing pieces of gravel and blacktop out of me with some kind of, I felt like a wire brush, and I'm biting my lip as a kid trying not to, not to cry because the morphine that they gave me wasn't touching the pain. And I looked over at my dad, who never ever let us see him cry because he was this stoic, unflappable American man. But there in the ER with me, tears were just streaming down his face, and there were no Ray-Ban sunglasses because he hurt when I was hurting. It hurt him to see me hurt. And that's compassion. And as a father has compassion on his children like that, so the Lord, and so much more the Lord, Yahweh, the great, self-existing, eternal, holy, almighty, I am. So He has compassion on those who fear Him. And when we suffer, because He cares, and He gets it, and He identifies with the pain so deeply as our God and Father, He gives us comfort. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. And there are those seasons in our lives where we really, really desperately need comfort. And the kind of comfort that only our merciful God and Father can give. And some of you are in seasons like that right now. And Jill, you're certainly in a season like that right now. And Nelson, you're certainly in a season like that right now. Great, great need of the comfort that only God can give. Listen to God's Word through the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul himself makes it very, very clear, because he knew himself, that one of the things that suffering Christians need the most is comfort. Paul said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so in Christ we share abundantly in comfort as well. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. That's a lot, that's a lot of comfort, right? Ten times. In the opening verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul just lavishes us with the realities of God's comfort upon his people. You want to know about comfort, that's a pretty good place to start in God's Word. And the core, central essence of Paul's encouragement to us there in 2 Corinthians 1 is that the source of that comfort, the substance of that comfort, the foundation of comfort, is God Himself. He is the one who comforts us in all our afflictions because He is the God of comfort. And by saying that, Paul doesn't just mean that He's the God who gives comfort like a, like a dispensary. 
sort of doling it out like a substance that exists outside of Him or apart from Him that we sort of spiritually ingest when we're feeling bad. That's not what God of comfort means. It doesn't just mean that comfort is something that comes from God. That's not what the word of means there in that context. Comfort doesn't come from us appealing to God sort of like a waiter or a servant in our employ when we're suffering. Go get me some comfort and bring it to me. And that, that's what we tend to do. That's how we tend to think, I think. I think we look at our circumstances kind of like a plate of food that we don't like. And, and we turn to God like He's the waiter and we say, take this away because it displeases me and I would like you to bring me something better. And then we think that our hope is anchored to expecting God to give us comfort by giving us what we ordered from Him and wanted from Him. But that's not at all what the Bible describes and defines and it's not at all where real comfort comes from. Real comfort, the kind that Isaiah is talking about and God is speaking through Isaiah, real comfort comes when we stop looking at God like He's a waiter or a butler who's just there to do our bidding and start praising God for His sovereign glory even in our suffering and then run to Him and hide in Him and find shelter and comfort in Him in His presence, because He's the comfort. He's the comfort. That's what Paul means when he says that God is the God of all comfort. It's not something outside of Him that comes from Him. It's what He is when we come to Him. And so that's what I want us to contemplate today. All throughout the Scriptures... God is saying to us and teaching us and revealing to us that the comfort that He gives to His people isn't so much in giving us pleasant circumstances. He does do that. And when He does, because He's sovereign over all of the circumstances, He delights often in blessing us and in hearing our prayers and providing good and pleasant things for us and causing the lines to cross in pleasant places, as the psalmist says. But through and through, God's Word is is pleading with us to know that His greatest provision for His people is His presence. Think about Psalm 73. I think Asaph's expression of this great truth is some of the richest and most profound truth that's revealed anywhere in the Psalms and in the Bible. Psalm 23, or 73, verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. And my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and He is my portion forever. And it's the nearness of God that is my good. So again, God's not just the provider of sort of all of the things on the wish list of our lives. He does delight in blessing us with good things. And when we ask, He loves to answer. 
But often in all of his wisdom, he knows that often when we ask, there's something better than, that we need than, than what we want. And he's good enough to let us have that. And his greatest provision, he knows, is his own presence because he himself is our portion. And in his sovereign wisdom, God orders all of the events of our lives. As Nick was meditating on this morning at the beginning of our service, both the pleasant and the painful providences, he's he's sovereign over all of it. And he orders all of those things in such a way as to bless us with the great and incomparable comfort of His unparalleled presence. Now, this is precisely where the people of Israel were in the context of Isaiah chapter 40. Long before this, God had brought them up out of the land of Egypt, up out of bondage and slavery and oppression, He'd given them good circumstances and caused the lines to cross in pleasant ways for them. He delivered them from tyranny, saved them from Pharaoh, brought them into the promised land, a land full of houses that they didn't have to build and vineyards that they didn't have to plant and and a land that was full and overflowing with milk and honey and richness and abundance beyond all of their wildest dreams and it was all a gift. It was all given by the gracious hand of the Creator God Himself. And how long was it after God had sovereignly delivered them from Pharaoh, how long was it after the miracle of the parting of the Red Sea and after the manna came down from heaven and water poured out of a rock in the middle of the dry desert, how long did it take after experiencing and receiving all of those blessings for their trust and confidence and gratitude towards God to start to wear thin and wane. It didn't take very long. They were grumbling that the manna didn't taste good enough, right? They were grumbling that there wasn't any meat to eat. They were grumbling because they had to walk through the wilderness with just this pillar of fire to guide them. And so they crafted a golden calf at the foot of Mount Sinai. And they sent human spies into the land at Kadesh Barnea because they didn't have confidence that God could actually do what He'd promised to do. And once they got into the land, again by the miraculous supernatural provision of God, there was no end in their history to all of the ways in which they expressed their distrust of Him. Idolatry, immorality, lawlessness, cycles after cycles. Because they wanted what they wanted. And they wanted it more than they wanted Him. So what did God do? He took it all away. He took it all away. Because of judgment, yes. But ultimately, His motivation was mercy. And to leave them with himself. And to satisfy them with his goodness. And so the first half of the book of Isaiah, chapters 1 through 39, is a running chronicle of God's displeasure with his people's behavior and all of the consequences that come because of their sin. 
And it seems like God's judgment is just on display. But the main theme of the book as a whole isn't that. The main theme of the book of Isaiah isn't the anger of God, isn't the judgment of God, isn't what God takes away from us, it's what He adds to us. The main theme is the theme that gets introduced in the second half of the book, which starts right here in Isaiah chapter 40. The main theme is also, by the way, what Isaiah's name means. His name means God will save. And through all of the words of judgment and consequence for sin that come through the first 39 chapters, through all of God's purposes to discipline His people, His ultimate purpose is to save them, to deliver them, to forgive them, to heal them, to establish them forever, to cause them in all of their weariness to soar on wings like eagles by His own faithfulness. All of that, you know, is going to come to a big crescendo in Isaiah 53 where Isaiah prophesies about the, the coming Messiah, a suffering servant who would pay for our iniquities with his own life, the one by whose sacrificial stripes we would be healed. But all the good news begins in chapter 40 right here with this simple, beautiful word, comfort. And it's repeated twice on purpose in the Hebrew, deliberately, so that when the suffering, weary people who had run out of gas and had no more strength of their own, when they heard this word repeated twice, they would do a double take and they would say, did God really say that? They're struggling, they're suffering, and God says comfort. And they said, did He say comfort? And so He says, yeah, comfort, my people. I mean it. After 39 chapters of painful providence, now the God of all comfort says, comfort. Comfort, my people, says your God. And the basis of the comfort that He speaks to them is this. Wired into the very same verse. It's the fact that through all of their sin and all of the discipline, all of their hard circumstances, all of the painful providences, God still calls them my people. And He calls Himself their God. Right? Through it all, you're mine. And through it all, I'm still yours. I think that's such a beautiful thing. You picture these people just getting the wind knocked out of them with 39 chapters of bad news. It's overwhelming. It it feels suffocating. They feel like they can't breathe. And you felt that way, right? Not always for the same reason that they were feeling that way here in this chapter. Not always because God is prophesying coming doom and judgment. But we feel suffocated sometimes because in our souls, because of the trials and the sorrows that we encounter and endure in this world, and they're heavy on our soul, and it feels like it's pressing us down and we can't even breathe. And then, see, in times like that is where God says, comfort, 
comfort my people, and you know, because I, I harp on this all the time, you know what this word comfort means in the Hebrew. It's the word nechama. You remember what it means literally? It means to cause to breathe again. It's beautiful. Through the most crushing, suffocating trials, God fills us with breath and life and comfort by assuring us that no matter what, He is our God. And we are His people. We belong to Him. That's the whole message of Isaiah 40. It's this. It's when you're struggling and when you're suffering and when the wind's knocked out of you and you feel like you're being squeezed and crushed and cannot breathe, go get up on a high mountain and behold how great and awesome your God is. It means as big as your problems are, and they are, Behold how much greater your God is. No matter what you're going through, in His presence, you can revel in His comfort. Get up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up and fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God, and then God just unleashes this revelation of His greatness and His awesome majesty and His glory so that in the worst troubles of our lives we can say, I have you and you have me. Behold Him when your heart is in anguish. Behold Him when your life is in shambles, behold Him when the floodwaters of tribulation are, are crashing over you and inundating you and pinning you down. No, He is with you. And He brings all the fullness of His glory to bear in caring for you. Verse 11, This God, who's going to speak in these unimaginable terms of His greatness and majesty and glory and might and power. This God will tend His flock like a shepherd and will gather the lambs in His arms. Almighty, omnipotent arms that could crush any foe, that could move any mountain, that could change any circumstance those arms will nestle you into his own bosom and he will gently lead those that are with young. The sovereign, exalted, majestic God of heaven and earth is with you and holds you in his all-powerful arms and that is the definition of comfort and what it means that he is the God of all comfort. And this chapter is so packed full of profound truth about who He is and what He is and His incomparable exaltedness as God, that again, the best thing to do with it is not to dig into the technicalities, but just, just let it wash over us. So, 
just sample a few of these powerful statements and then they, they carry us right into Isaiah chapter 41, which is where I want to land. Verse 18 asks, To whom will you liken God? He's incomparable. What likeness will you compare with Him? You can't draw a picture of Him. There are no analogs of Him. There's nothing that's like Him in the, in the slightest. He's in a league of His own. Verse 12, Who has measured the waters? Think about all of the oceans in this world and every other world in this universe. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand? Who has marked off the heavens by a span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who, who can do that? And the point, obviously, is no one can do that except for Him. Our God is infinitely superior to anything or anyone else in all of the created order. And so the emphasis here is simply on the bigness of our God. The uniqueness of our God. The transcendent greatness of our God. And His greatness is highlighted so beautifully and profoundly that we'd be the worst kind of fools, see, to look anywhere else in all of creation but to Him for hope and for strength and for comforts in our lives. So God is presented as incomparably great and powerful. Verses 13 and 14 remind us that He is also all-knowing. There is no one in all of the universe who can teach Him anything. He has no need of a counselor because His wisdom is, is perfect and absolute. There is nothing unknowable to God. He can't increase in understanding or knowledge because He knows all things. Verse 28, the only words that it can put to it is His understanding is unsearchable, inscrutable. That means that His wisdom and knowledge are so boundless and so infinitely, perfectly complete that it's literally impossible to begin to catalog it or quantify it or plumb the depths of God's understanding. You could bore down on it for a billion years and not scratch the surface. And the message again is that our God is infinitely great, infinitely wise, infinitely sovereign, and possesses infinite knowledge, and there is nothing Again, as our brother said earlier, that you can go through that he doesn't get, that he doesn't understand, that he doesn't know about. And it's really only when we realize that and focus our minds on that and put our hope in him and wait on him that we're going to find strength and comfort in our times of great weakness. And what a glorious reality is that this great holy God is by no means unapproachable, but says to His people, come. I'll make the way for you to come. If you're sinful, I'll redeem you. I'll wash you clean so that you can come. Like little children, I want you to come to Me and find rest. Because He's a God who is compassionate and who loves those who wait upon Him. 
And so chapter 40 ends with these words that we all know so well and have probably many of us set to memory and have emblazoned upon plaques on our walls. Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. It's a promise. When God says it shall be, it shall be. And they shall mount up with wings like eagles, and they shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. You can count on it when you know that this great God is the one who will lift you, who will hold you, who will carry you through the most debilitating trials of your lives. Those who wait for the Lord are the ones who don't try to fix things themselves. Those who wait for the Lord are those who don't impatiently run off in their own strength or turn to someone or something else to try to find comfort. Those who trust God and His unsearchable wisdom so much that they, they, they sit still in the midst of the pain and they just wait for Him to renew His strength in His time and in His way. Instead of doing what I always want to do and charge off in self-reliance and say, I got this and I'll do it my way. Don't take it the wrong way, but it is such a profound mercy when God orders our circumstances and providences in such painful ways that there's not even an impulse to be able to say, I've got this. And I can fix this. And in my strength, I can endure this and I'll do it my way. What mercy there is in those times when we can sit and wait for the Lord because there's nothing else that we could ever imagine sustaining us. And then God says, I've got you. I've got you nestled up in my omnipotent arms and I will raise you up and I will provide for you and I will care for you and I will comfort you. Those who trust in the Lord and wait for the Lord are the ones who lean on Him fully and not on their own understanding or strength. Our only comfort is in knowing that His greatest provision is His own presence and finding such solace and rest and shelter in Him that no other place, no other person, nothing we could ever do, nowhere we could ever go could ever compare with the goodness of His nearness. Now, most of us are probably familiar with Isaiah chapter 40 already, and especially those last few verses, but I want to carry on past those verses for a minute today with everything that Isaiah 40 is declaring about the goodness and the compassion and the comfort of our God as a backdrop And focus on the great comfort that he speaks of in the opening verses of chapter 41, especially verse 10. And verse 10 is another one of those, commit it to memory and inscribe it on your brain and hide it in your heart and write it on the walls of your house kinds of verses. So that if we would emblazon it upon our souls so indelibly that that when the trials and sufferings of this life crush us and and the affliction squeeze us and we feel like we can't even breathe that this this is what would come out of us 
Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, for I who? The guy who revealed himself in chapter 40. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I, the God who revealed himself in chapter 40, I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And behind that great, there's five great promises just in that verse. All stand together in one magnificent statement. And behind all of that lies everything that God reveals himself to be in chapter 40. The God who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. The God who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. The God who who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. The God who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand and marked off the heavens by a span and calculated the dust in a measure and weighed the mountains in a scale This incomparably awesome, exalted, glorious, all-knowing God says to you in your soul's darkest hours, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. When all around your soul gives way, He then is all your hope and stay. That's the comfort. No comfort besides that. Look quickly with me here at how chapter 41 supports it. It reveals several big truths about God. Watch this. Watch how God reveals Himself. And and watch how the unbelieving nations of the world respond to this great God. And then how God, in contrast, gives comfort to His beloved people. Verse 1 says, in chapter 41, Coastlands, listen to me. He's talking to the nations of the world. Listen to me in silence. Let the peoples gain new strength. Let them come forward. Then let them speak and say, let us come together for judgment. God is calling all of the peoples of the nations to muster whatever strength they think they have in their self-sufficiency and come and stand before Him in judgment. He's, he's calling all men to give an accounting of their lives. And the thing to see there is that that's who God is. That's what God is. He's the one who stands in judgment over all men. He's the one to whom we all must give account. He's the measure by which we will all be measured. But no man stands in judgment over Him. He doesn't have to give an account to anyone. He's the Lord. He's the judge of all. And and then in verse 2 and 3, God says, Who stirred up one from the east, from whom victory meets at every step? He gives nations up before this man so that he tramples kings underfoot and makes them like dust with his sword and drives stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths of his feet have not trod. He's talking about some of the one from the east whom victory meets at every step. He's talking about an earthly king that God is raising up and strengthening and and is going to make victorious against all odds. It's probably talking about Cyrus, the great Persian king that God raised up to destroy Babylon after 
they had taken the Israelites captive and, 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 and Cyrus was the one who allowed the Israelites to go home after their captivity. And here God's saying the reason he prevailed is because I raised him up. God led him in victory. It was God's sovereign hand and power by which Cyrus was able to do whatever he did. So, so God is the Lord and judge of all men and God is the king of all kings. God is the ruler sovereignly of all rulers. He's the one who who controls all the affairs of men and nations for His good purposes. And then verse 4, thirdly, God says, Who has performed and done this? Calling the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am He. So not only is He the Lord and judge of all the people, not only is He the sovereign King and ruler of all rulers, He's the great I Am. He's the first. He's the uncreated one. The one who depends on nothing. And the one who everything in creation depends on for everything. And then, verse 5, God says this. Well, the coastlands, the nations, the people of the world, they've seen They're afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They've drawn near. They've come. What do they do in response to this great God before whom they tremble? The people of the world do this. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong. And the craftsman strengthens the goldsmith and he who smooths with the hammer strengthens him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it's good, and they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. you know what it's describing? Yeah, they're making idols. What are we going to do in the presence of this great God who stands over us as the judge of all the earth? We've got this. We're strong enough. Let's make some idols. That's what the world does. That's what the world does. They are utterly self-sufficient in their response to the summons of God. Let us be strong. They run around trying to craft and strengthen their idols, smoothing their graven images and saying, this will do, it's good. Look what we made, look what we did to establish our hope to make ourselves strong, to give ourselves comfort, to make ourselves safe, to make our lives worthy. Does it sound ridiculous to you? That's the point. That's what the nations say. That's what unbelievers do. That's what the self-reliant flesh does. Look at the work of my hands. Look at our technology. Look at our inventions. Look at all the advances in science and engineering and our discoveries. Look what we did. Look how we met our own needs. And all of us can think in terms of our own lives. And all of the ways, whatever they are, all of the things, all of the people that we are tempted to look to more than we look to our God to establish our hope and our confidence and our comfort. That's what all this is. It's a picture of the unrepentant nations desperately trying to convince themselves that their own strength is sufficient, that their own self-wrought gods are adequate 
and good enough to secure their hope and comfort and peace in this life. But this is the contrast. Verses 8 and 9. But you, Israel, my people, my servant, Jacob, you whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its furthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant and I have chosen you and not cast you off. See, the the contrast is the people of God who don't stand in their own strength, who can't point to anything in them, who can't pretend that self-reliance is going to get us anywhere, who can only point to the sovereign ruler and judge of all and say, He chose me in spite of me. I was nothing. I was far from Him. I was His enemy. But the one who judges the nations and rules all the rulers and called everything into being from nothing, he, he took me as his own. There's your comfort. That's what he's done for us in Christ. He chose us before the foundations of the world. Jesus came to us when we could not and would not go to him. Shed his blood for us, called us out of darkness and, and death, took us for himself, made us his own children gave us the right to call Him our God and our Father. There's no greater comfort than that. And so the whole point is this. The whole point is to always, always, always live in the contrast of what it means to be a child of this God over and against the idolatrous, fleshly, worldly self-reliance of our natural sinful hearts. And the only way to do that, the only way to defeat fleshly self-reliance and self-exaltation and self-gratification and to be free from the bonds of fear and despair is to throw ourselves into the realization that these great truths that God reveals about Himself are true for us. To realize and confess and submit to the truth that this God of Isaiah chapter 40 is the God of Isaiah chapter 41 and verses 1 through 9, and is the God of verse 10, is the God who is with us, is the God who will strengthen us if we wait for Him. He's calling us to submit because submitting is being blessed. He's calling us to kneel before the reality that He who judges all the earth and calls the peoples to give account for their lives. The God who sovereignly rules over all the rulers and calls the nations into being because He's the great uncreated Creator. He's calling us to say, He is my God. And to hear Him say, I am your God. I am with you. I will not subjugate you like the rulers of the earth and crush you under my sovereign rule. I will bless you. I will be with you. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you. Therefore, whatever you're going through, whatever anguish is suffocating your soul because of who I am and because I am with you, therefore, do not fear and do not be dismayed. You'll feel fear. You'll feel dismay. But you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to panic. You don't have to lose it. Because when you are afraid, you can put your trust in this God. 
The only source of comfort is God Himself and the unrestricted access that we have to Him in Jesus Christ. He's stronger than you are. And so you can stop living by your own strength. He's wiser than you are. And so you can stop leaning on your own understanding. He promises to uphold you. And so you can stop trying to uphold yourself and collapse into His almighty arms and cry and weep and mourn and receive His comfort. He's the judge of the whole universe. You don't have to fear men. He's sovereign over all of the affairs of men. So you don't have to let any circumstance of your past or of your present paralyze you with fear. Fear not, for He is with you. And He is greater than all your wounds, than all your pain, than all the sorrow that you feel in your life. Don't let anything or anyone affect you more, shape you more, define you more, influence you more, comfort you more than the infinitely great and holy God who is with you. Let Him and His glory and the gospel of His grace and the great comfort of His presence define your life now. Define your joy and your strength. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. To be your help, to be your strength, to be your hope, to be your comfort. Pray with me. Our God and our Father, we praise you for who you are. We praise you that you are almighty. We praise you that you are all-knowing. We praise you that you are ever-present. We praise you that you are immeasurably great and awesome and powerful. We praise you for your justice and holiness We praise you for your tenderness and your mercy and your fatherly kindness and compassion. And we praise you for the comfort that comes from knowing you and being known by you and resting in you and being upheld by your almighty right hand. Father, we pray for those brokenhearted ones today who are waiting for you, who are here, who have drawn near to your throne of grace in their darkest hour and have opened wide their mouths and are calling out, Abba, 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 because that's the only word they can think to say. Father, be with them. Be near to them. May your nearness be their good, and may your greatness be their comfort. Holy Spirit, intercede with those groanings that are too deep for words as you know their spirits and what is roiling within, and give peace that surpasses all understanding, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We picked all these songs. Well, I say we. Nick picked all these songs. I think because he needed them. On Wednesday, before we knew what Jill was going through. Because God picked all these songs because we needed them. So let's all stand together and sing a hymn that God selected for us to sing in His providence. Be still, my soul, the Lord is on your side.